c'est vrai. Je suis un ananas. Now, in the uh, towers of uh, Edmonton... I'm not a Tory, I don't speak on both sides. I do not use crack cocaine, nor am I an addict. Histories and Mysteries. I am Jessica. And I'm still Janelle. So we will we will begin this to- this week's topic as we should begin all of our topics with a delightful nursery rhyme. And it's a nursery rhyme that you probably know. And it goes, Lizzie Borden took an axe and gave her mother 40 wax. And when she saw what she had done, she gave her father 41. Quite the tune. Quite the tune. A little ditty that we used to jump rope to. My father taught me this, which is weird in hindsight. (laughs) So yeah, we're talking about the infamous Borden family axe murders and the trial of their daughter, Lizzie Borden. So although Lizzie Borden's 1893 murder trial was considered the trial of the century at the time, and was probably the first American trial of the century... Which we, we've been getting more and more of those at an exponential rate. We're going to have a trial of the century every year eventually. They're going to be coming like every three minutes. <laughs> yeah, hers hers genuinely was like the trial of the century. Like for the 19th century, it's, it's basically Lizzie Borden or it's nothing. They meant it. They meant it. And the 20th <laughs> century had O.J. Simpson's trial, which was, was really the, a, a pretty big one. And now in the 21st century, we've had a few. We're... Uh, we're picking up the pace <laughs> a little bit on this one. But yeah, even though knowledge of Lizzie Borden and her trial survives in pop culture to this day, more, mostly in the form of that nursery rhyme, I don't know if people are still teaching it to their kids, but if you're old enough to listen to this podcast, you probably know it. Most people no longer know any specific details about the case. I feel like most knowledge of this case is now strictly nursery rhyme based. <laughs> yeah, it's gotten a little vague in people's memories, which is why we're returning to it as a classic. Right off the bat, couple things to know. The female victim in this case, Abby Borden, was not Lizzie Borden's mother. She was actually her stepmother. Lizzie Borden's mother died years before this murder. I do believe I have the vapors. An inaccuracy. <laughs> well, in that case, you're going to want to lie on the floor because the murder weapon was a hatchet, not an axe. <laughs> Get me my smelling salts. <laughs> I know. The victims received far fewer blows than the rhyme states. Abby actually received an estimated of 18 to 19 axe wounds, while Andrew received 11. And Lizzie Borden was, spoiler alert for a 130-year-old murder case, ultimately acquitted of the murder charges, although she remains a suspect to this day. So, you know, don't believe everything that you were taught in a rude nursery rhyme by your father. In a, I don't know why he taught me this. <laughs> My dad also taught me, uh, when I die, bury me, hang my balls from a cherry tree. I don't know what the <laughs> lesson is in that one, but yeah, says that one constantly. I don't, I think that might just be my dad. <laughs> my favorite is actually, that I actually do know the history of is, um, y- Yankee, Yankee Doodle. Yankee Doodle went to town riding on a pony, stuck a feather in his hat and called it macaroni. Uh, macaroni at the time meant extremely fashionable. Oh, well, that's fun. He's riding into town, this classless Yankee with a feather in his hat, and he thinks he's extremely fashionable, but he looks like an idiot. That's what that one means. <laughs> but it just sounds like gibberish without any historical context. <laughs> well, that's that's fun. And the the uh, the Lizzie Borden 
rhyme we gave is that I recited for you at the beginning is the jump rope rhyme, and it is sung to the tune of Tarara Boomdie, which is a was a popular song back then, but I couldn't tell you exactly how this fits into the rhyme scheme. <laughs> I, no I idea. Keep... No. <laughs> we've heard the rhyme, we've heard the ditty, but what actually happened at the Borden house on that summer day in 1892? Did Lizzie Borden get away with murder? Uh, maybe. <laughs> I'm not going to give you an answer one way or the other. Just getting that out there. I don't know. Everybody involved in this case is dead, and their kids are dead, and nobody knows. <laughs> now nah, we're going to solve it. We're on no. the case. <laughs> the police work was bad by 19th century standards. Nobody's solving this thing. <laughs> Woo! <laughs> and when it's, when it's worse than 19th century bad, you know it's bad. So many people walked through this crime scene, they may as well have sold tickets. So I, I really don't think we're solving this anytime soon. <laughs> but, uh, you know, never know. Keep the faith. There's more than a century of writing and speculation on this case. This is obviously a very, very famous case that, as it turns out, people have, like, devoted truly impressive amounts of time to. There's entire forums that are just for the Lizzie Borden case. Like, there are people who spend years just sort of obsessively going over the details of this case. So I I don't have answers. A fine line between impressive and concerning. Like, there is a Lizzie Borden fandom. (laughs) There is. There is fan fiction. There is fan art. (laughs) There are cosplay cons. There's not. But if there was, <laughs> if oh there my was. gosh. But uh, no, if, if you know, 72-year-old Lindsay from North Carolina, who's like 600 hours deep into this case, can't come up with an answer, I, I don't have it for you either. But I can certainly give you the details about what actually happened. Let's get into it, starting with the Borden family. So Andrew Jackson Borden, which was Lizzie Borden's father was born on September 13th, 1822, in the town of Fall River, Massachusetts. Presumably named after the the racist president. (laughs) I was like, President Fall River, Massachusetts? I don't remember that one. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Andrew Jackson, yeah, I'm guessing that's named after the president. Um, Her father grew up in a home with financial struggles, and he had some financial struggles when he first started out as an adult in his early 20s. But his luck changed when he got into the casket sale business, which is fun. That's a fun way to make money. Some sources will incorrectly list him as an undertaker. That's not what he did. He sold caskets. Uh, He was was a furniture salesman, but but more specifically, he made most of his money in coffins. The baggy equivalent of a goldfish for your grandma. You have to flush her with respect. That means a pine box. (laughs) A tree must die in order for your grandma's soul to rest. <laughs> <laughs> Basically a pencil case, but the pencil is Auntie Linda's corpse. <laughs> like that. You gotta zip her up. That's what a coffin is. <laughs> Glad we could clear that up for you. <laughs> but once Andrew Jackson Borden had started to build up his wealth, he used his sweet, sweet coffin money to start buying up textile mills and commercial properties. And pretty soon he had himself a nice little empire. This is like approximately the seven millionth time on this podcast we've had to mention that it's actually very difficult to translate the value of currency across time. Especially now that who knows what a dollar is going to be worth tomorrow, folks. Um, (laughs) What a time to be alive. Death taxes and inflation. (laughs) They forget that last one. Haven't had to contend with that one in a while, but it's making up for lost time. Mm -hmm. 
At the time of death, Andrew Borden's estate was worth around $300,000, which would be approximately $9.6 million in today's money. So this guy was wealthy. Like, this was a, this is a very wealthy family. The Elon Musk of his time, just getting rich on fancy caskets. Not, not quite. <laughs> I mean, oh no, that took me a minute. No! <laughs> I guess a Tesla is a fancy casket in some ways. (laughs) Jessica broke herself with her own joke. I mean, if this podcast goes okay. off the air, it's because Jessica will have been hit and killed by a driverless car. <laughs> True. Andrew Jackson Borden, having made his fortune, married Sarah Anthony Morse. And in 1851, she gave birth to Emma Lenora Borden, who was Lizzie Borden's older sister. Lizzie Andrew Borden was born nine years later in 1860, which is quite a name. Her legal full name was Lizzie, not Elizabeth, which is fun even by today's standards. That is personal. You have to name me after you, after the president? Rude. (laughs) Just some some adorable little girl growing up with the middle name Andrew, and her sister's middle name is Anthony. (laughs) (laughs) Just name me, I was hoping for a son, Borden, and don't waste our fucking time. (laughs) Uh, reminds me of looking at these, uh, these, these, um, name popularity charts for, like, the name Humphrey, and, you know, it tells you how popular it is for men and how popular it is for women, and, like, of course, like, there's just, like, a, a deadline for women all the way across, except there's this weird spike in the 1920s, and it's like, what happened here? <laughs> Something bad. What is this? This is ominous. Honestly, I think it's time for a Humphrey resurgence. That is a solid name. That is a solid name. But it's just hard to... It's Because here's the thing. There's a lot of men who deserve to be named Humphrey, but there's not one single baby. <laughs> no. It's a good name for, like, a flat-faced dog. That's... Yes. It, it is a name with jowls. <laughs> yes, it is. So when Lizzie Borden was just three years old, tragedy struck the family. Her mother, Sarah Borden, passed away from uterine congestion, which is notably not axe murder. Uh, no, no, it doesn't sound like it's gross. I mean, if you if you don't know what uterine congestion is, I think most of you probably do. It's when you forget to blow your vagina. It absolutely is not. <laughs> it's, it's just not. It's not what it is. Um, <laughs> today, uterine congestion is a fairly common issue that can be resolved with like compression stockings and minimally invasive surgery. But back then, I guess you just fucking died. That was just the plan. You just die. Them's the ropes. So in 1866, three years after the death of Lizzie's mother, her father remarries Abby Dernfee Gray. So, spoiler alert, this is the woman who gets axe murdered. After his remarriage to Abby, Andrew Borden then moves the family from the homestead where he'd lived with Sarah to a house at number 92 2nd Street, the place known today as the Borden Murder House. You can still visit it! It's a bed and breakfast now that is murder-themed, which is fun. Ooh... You can actually sleep in the uh, restored rooms where the murders happened, which is sort of a fun thing. Do you know how much it would cost for an, like a e- uh, weekend or something? <laughs> Jessica's like, romantic vacation found. Uh, I don't know. 
but here's here's the thing. I, it would you can you imagine like dropping like a thousand dollars to spend a weekend at the Lizzie Borden murder house and you don't even get murdered? <laughs> I don't think people stay at murder houses for the murdering. I, I mean, th- what are they there for then? <laughs> Explain. TikTok content. Come on. I guess. <laughs> I mean, the expensive part of this would be flying to Massachusetts. Um, I guess. I guess. But yeah, no, house is still there. House has been restored to its original state as it appeared in 1892, which is kind of fun. So a lot has been written about the dynamic in the Borden household and the relationships between members of the family. And you should probably take a lot of it with a very generous grain of salt. A lot of this stuff was written after the murders, so a lot of it is very much like trying to work backwards from the murders to try to find a motive that Lizzie would have had for killing her parents. You basically start with the premise that Lizzie did it, and you're like, alright, what would have made her pissed off enough to murder? That's, that's where a lot of this comes from. As is often the case with sensationalized true crime, it was the more salacious stories that sold papers. People didn't want to read about, like a family with average everyday struggles. They wanted weird rich people with weird rich people family dynamics. People really read a lot into some of the small details about the Borden's lives after the murders, and they came back with some pretty out there theories. That the Borden family was incestuous, that there was some weird Freudian overtones in the house, that the Borden girls had a deformed illegitimate half-brother watching with resentment from the shadows, Basically, if Andrew Lloyd Webber would put it in a Broadway musical, it has been speculated about Lizzie Borden. I would love an entire, like, musical by Andrew Lloyd Webber that was just about- About Lizzie Borden? Yes, I would go see it. And it even makes- it makes more (laughs) sense than either Cats or that weird fucking Thomas the Tank Engine monstrosity. I would go see it if it also ended in ritualistic cat suicide. I feel (laughs) like that is- he set the tone for Broadway musicals with that one. (laughs) Lizzie Borden took an axe, gave her mother 40 wax. And then everyone's like snapping their fingers and shit. <laughs> and gyrating. I, I don't even know that you should be allowed to go see Broadway without adult supervision. <laughs> it gave me ideas. <laughs> When you saw Phantom of the Opera, I personally supervised you. (laughs) (laughs) Like, this is a great idea. Brand new avenues and housing. (laughs) Opera house basement ghost. Opportunity unlocked. If I could live underneath the Vancouver Orchestra, I would. (laughs) Listen, you live in Vancouver. In Vancouver's housing market, that's a pretty solid setup. That's a deal. Live in the live in the band room with all the with all the tubas. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, it's amazing. Um, there there are there are walk-in closets going for eight hundred dollars a month in this city. <laughs> <laughs> a basement opera house where you also get box five reserved for you is a pretty sweet setup. Yeah, it had an entire lake in it. <laughs> that is a spacious, spacious villainous lair. <laughs> So Lizzie's father, Andrew, was said to be a staunchly religious and exceptionally frugal man to almost an extreme degree. He sounds fun. He was said to enjoy making money simply for the sake of making money, but didn't actually enjoy spending it on things. So, for instance, although running water and flush toilets were common amenities for well-to-do homes by the mid-to-late 19th century, the Borden house did not have them. 
furthermore, the home actually had running water when the family moved in, but Andrew deemed this an unnecessary luxury and had all of the indoor plumbing cut off, except for the laundry room sink in the basement and a hookup by the kitchen. Flush toilets? Pure frivolity. (laughs) (laughs) We shall carry our poop in buckets. (laughs) Shit builds character. (laughs) Shit in a pot like your ancestors intended. Flush toilets feels like the first amenity of civilization. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Right? If you can afford flush toilets, I feel like that's your priority. Uh, Not intentionally have them disconnected. Like, nobody is like, you know what? No. Poop buckets forever. Like, no. Especially because, like, the most expensive part of plumbing is the putting it in. (laughs) (laughs) Upkeep is not particularly pricey. Do you know how cheap water is? (laughs) So they were already, like, odd for that. He also refused to have the home hooked up to the gas mains or to have a phone line installed, which were also common amenities for the middle class at the time. And this is not a middle class family. This is an upper class family. So without being connected to the gas mains, the family had to cook, heat, and light the house with kerosene, which he strictly rationed. And to borrow a phrase from Twitter, I know it smell crazy in there. (laughs) (laughs) I can only imagine. You're one of the wealthiest families in town, but your entire house is dank as the inside of a whale and smells like a trapper's cabin in the midst of January. (laughs) Right, like, I feel like gas is also a pretty, like, that's a thing you get connected if you can afford it. Like, that's that's a basic convenience that you spring for, especially because, like, there are gas mains at this point. This is not an extravagance. Like, people have gas mains, they have phone lines. This is... Yeah, and like all these are very time intensive activities, like hauling in firewood, chopping firewood, kerosene, filling kerosene, carrying out shit buckets. This is not cheap necessarily. Like this is expensive in terms of time input, in terms of labor. It's a strange thing to deal with when you don't have to. Like we're not yeah, like, this is not edible gold leaf in your ice cream, exactly. No, and, like, this is the mid-19th century. Like, we're not banging rocks together in caves. Like, people have flush toilets. They have running water. They and they have, have phones. for a while. They have for a bit. Um, also, most stoves in, the, in middle-class homes in this era had huge reservoirs for warming large amounts of water you could use throughout the day. But this, too, was a luxury that Andrew Borden saw no need for. The Borden household had an older stove where you could only heat as much water as you could fit in a pot. So, you're just taking whore baths over a slop bucket. Like, this is not... (laughs) (laughs) Ah, yes, a life of luxury. Cold sponge baths in the dark. (laughs) Truly making the most of all that life has to enjoy. It'd be kind of like making friends with a millionaire today and then going to their house and finding out that they make everything on a hot plate and wash all their clothes in the sink. Like, you don't have to do that. (laughs) The Borden home was also located in a less fashionable part of town than what the Bordens could afford. People with their money and social standing tended to live in a trendy neighborhood called The Hill, which was further away from the industrial parts of town. But the Bordens lived in a less fashionable part of town, in a neighborhood that became home to an influx of working-class Catholic immigrants. <gasps> the horror. Uh, and, and the Bordens the were Canadians. not Catholic. Papists! That's the papists in my good... Lutheran neighborhood. <laughs> <laughs> Better to the thought. 
Like, nowadays, there are so many different people people around us that, like, you have to be broad with your bigotry. Back <laughs> in the day, no, you could get granular with that shit. You could, you could be specific. Canada is also, like, a majority Catholic country for the most part and has been for a while. We don't experience the simple joy of calling somebody a papist with visible disgust. My family's been Catholic uh, it's forever. It's so fun, though. <laughs> so, <laughs> can't, can't pull this one off. My grandmother will slap me from beyond the grave. But, um... <laughs> she will rise purely to haunt me for my uncouth disrespect of the Pope. <laughs> <laughs> my whole family are like French-Canadian Catholics and Irish Catholics marrying each other because... It's just Catholics marrying each other in the woods. They ran out of, like, the same type of Catholic to marry, so they had to, like, look around the woods and be like, all right, you'll do. The, the, the Irish <laughs> are the only way that the French Canadians didn't breed themselves out of existence through incest. It's, <laughs> like, French Canadians genuinely have a, a genetic diversity that is so low, it's common to use rural Quebec for studies. Um, and like we have a, we have a similar problem to uh, the Jewish diaspora where just being French Canadian puts you at higher risk for diseases like Kurtzfeld Jakob <laughs> like you literally we are so inbred you can get prion diseases the Anglophones think they're above us we think we're above Italians the only people who are coming to rescue us are the Irish <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm I'm Acadian, which is actually worse. Um, where people Acadian. all the time are like, "Oh, are you related to this like other Acadian from the same town?" I'm like, almost definitely. Like, oh, certainly. Yeah. No, that that's a problem I have as well. Like, people will be like, "Oh, Jessica Peugeot. Do you know a Peugeot from Albert?" Yes, yes, I do. Not only do I know them, we are a direct blood relative. <laughs> if you know another Peugeot who is west of Manitoba, we are blood. <laughs> Less of a gene pool, more of a foot spa. Like, it's not... <laughs> yeah. Like, e even if you go all the way to Quebec, I'm, like, I'm probably related to them, too. <laughs> <laughs> well this is sort of what happened like the the dynamics of fall river at the time of the murders actually do play a big part in the investigation and the aftermath because the bordens were some of the only upper class well-to-do people staying in the neighborhood that rapidly filled up with undesirables like french canadians and irish people and portuguese catholics so it became a working class Catholic neighborhood and it was not, it was surprising to people that the Bordens chose to stay there because <laughs> living next to a papist Canadian, bearish the thought. <laughs> a combination of different ethnicities in one place. <laughs> yep. Yep. Yeah. It was people, people were weird about it. It was, all of it was weird. Uh, that's that is that is genuinely why why white people need to live in multicultural societies. Otherwise, we start getting weird at each other. <laughs> We're like white person, but wrong kind of white person. Yeah, no, we should <laughs> we should not be left alone. <laughs> it's just a bunch of wasps, and we act like it too. Yeah, when you get when you get too many people of European descent sitting around in the same room, you start being like, "All right, but how do you feel about Mother Mary?" Like, no, we we get weird with it. <laughs> <laughs> Most accounts of the family seem to agree that Andrew was not regarded as particularly warm or gregarious. Uh, most accounts of describe him as downright unpleasant and dour. 
you're not at your best when you're washing your balls in cold day old <laughs> water. I very rarely am I at my cheeriest. <laughs> I mean, he chose this. Mm, well water. He's squatting over a bucket in the dark because he's like, better this than paying for toilets. Like, that's Sharon, some fault. <laughs> Lizzie, on the other hand, was described as compassionate, kind, and conscientious. Her teachers note that she wasn't a gifted student, but she was very, very diligent and conscientious, and she managed to rank highly in her classes just by working hard. Uh, she was also reportedly something of a late bloomer. For much of her life, she was shy and had very low self-esteem, and apparently constantly worried that she'd made a poor impression on other people. She only really began Mood. to come out of her shell in her mid to late 20s, becoming more outgoing and having more of a social life, which, girl, same. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, in the weeks before the murders, Lizzie was traveling and visiting with friends and just living it up, having a good time. She was also very active in her church and was a champion of social justice causes. Probably because the church had running water. <laughs> She's like, I'm here to poop. <laughs> <laughs> She's just picking up communion on the way to the bathroom. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Uh, no, she was very entrenched in her church. Uh, she occasionally worked as a Sunday school teacher and belonged to a variety of Christian women's organizations, sometimes in leadership roles. She was part of things like the Christian Women's Temperance Society and was all about the less fortunate. Although she was 32 at the time of the murders, she was unmarried and still lived at home at that time, along with her 41-year-old sister, who was also unmarried. A spinster. Spinsters. But I bet they didn't do any spinning. I feel very ripped off by that. Most spinsters don't spin at all these days. Disgusting kids these days. No, I, I see. I see a bunch of sing, like hot fit singles on 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 TikTok, and I'm just like, you are wasting your prime years, and you have not yet learned to sew. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, in fairness, Jessica, we are both over the age of twenty five. How will you ever be manageable? <laughs> You're gonna have to go get a spinning wheel, Jessica. Now that you, the challenge I know how to stuff. So don't look at me. I had I you had French rise aunties. To the occasion. I, I I made myself a blanket once. I expect you huddled over the wheel, thinking about why you don't have a husband. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Lizzie Borden was not said to be an unattractive woman, and I mean you can look at pictures and decide for yourself. But she's. She doesn't have like an extra ear. Like she's she's an attractive woman. Yeah, I've seen I've seen photos of her. Like that's a woman. Yeah. yeah. Lizzie Borden can get it. Um... Uh, two eyes, one nose, mouth, everything I've asked for. <laughs> she's not exactly a Picasso, you know. Well, <laughs> you said with disappointment in your voice. I date a woman with two eyes on one side of her face, like a flounder. Yes, please. <laughs> if you don't have two eyes on one side of your face like some sort of lungfish, Jessica's not interested. <laughs> <laughs> and they migrate slowly over time. That's the thing about flounder. They start off looking like normal fish. Like the flounder like flounder from from um the Little Mermaid is clearly a juvenile. They start like looking like a normal ass fish, but then slowly their face migrates to one side so that they can lie on, on that on their flat side on the bottom of the ocean. Fun. I don't know Both why sides just sticking up. I don't know why Job got a whole book in the Bible. It's clearly the flounders that God hates. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, not as much as male anglerfish though. 
<laughs> Live as a parasite. You're basically a wart. <laughs> uh, slowly dissolve into a par- uh, like a tiny nutsack on the side of a much larger female. Isn't that the dream, fellas? It's what I want in a relationship. <laughs> Just men to come up, bite me in the ass, and then slowly fuse their face and brain to the rest of my body until they're just a dangling pair of nuts. Far simpler. <laughs> When's the wedding, Jessica? <laughs> <laughs> what a beautiful ceremony that will be. <laughs> Do you, Jessica, take this anal lump <laughs> to be your lifelong parasite? Uh, just... <laughs> The most beautiful cloaca I've ever seen. <laughs> Wonderful. Uh, well, D- Lizzie Borden did not have a man slowly dissolving into her ass. Yeah. She was just single. You can uh, tell when a lady's polyg- polygamous because she just got like eight pairs of nutsacks just flapping off of her back. That would make twerking interesting. Jesus Christ. <laughs> 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 oh yeah, you're you're gonna get hit by a car because I'm in fine form tonight. <laughs> Can you imagine the sound? <laughs> now that you've insulted Teslas and called them fancy coffins, uh... <laughs> Elon Musk can honestly justify it just on that comment alone. Like, no, she had to go. <laughs> take her out. Oh, <laughs> I feel like I need to take a lap recover (laughs) so historians have presented various theories about why lizzie borden was single and had no known romantic involvement by the time she was in her early 30s and most of these theories rhyme with schmizbian uh no one no (laughs) one's suggesting the whole angler angler fish angle no nobody's nobody's going with she was holding out for the right man to bite her and slowly fuse into her left ass cheek (laughs) i don't uh Probably, I, I, probably is a lesbian. Probably lesbian is is a much more realistic theory. I I feel like we should just go with schmesbian <laughs> and not anglerfish looking for her sperm producing wart man. <laughs> Wonderful. Most sources indicate that the Bordens were not exactly one big happy family. Relationships between the family members were known to be strained, particularly the relationship between the girls and their parents. Emma and Lizzie called their stepmother Mrs. Borden when speaking to or about her, which even for the mid-19th century, that's a pretty formal way to refer to a woman who's been living with you since you were six. (laughs) That's cool. You can't even call her Abby? Jeez. Abigail? Or mother or... Stepmama. I don't know what the fuck they called buddy? it in the 19th century. Buddy. <laughs> hey, buddy. Uh, no, Mrs. Borden, uh, which is which is a little stuffy. Yeah, especially if they called their dad dad. If they called their dad Mr. Borden, that's just, that's just them being weird again. <laughs> Emma and Lizzie were also reportedly concerned that their stepmother had only married their father to get her hands on his vast wealth. Although, joke's on her, she's living in the dark with no toilet. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it feels like so. you played yourself here. <laughs> <laughs> right. If if uh, she married him for money, she did a bad job. <laughs> she would have been living better if she if she married a man a quarter of his wealth who just believed in flush toilets. <laughs> right. The family's live-in maid would also later testify that Emma and Lizzie, who lived at home right up until the murders, rarely ate meals with their parents, or meaning Andrew and Abby. 
That's not to say that there was no affection at all between Andrew and his daughters. The only piece of jewelry Andrew ever wore was a gold ring that Lizzie had gifted to him when she was a teenager. He actually wore this right up until the moment he died and was buried with it on his finger. So they, they have some affection. They're not complete monsters. I bet they I saved a lot of money on the coffin, though. <laughs> Just get one from out the back. No need to... No... Get the employee deal. <laughs> employee. Family discount. Um... <laughs> <laughs> Some true crime enthusiasts and just people on the internet writing about this case have speculated that Andrew Borden may have been sexually abusing his daughters or sexually abusing Lizzie. There isn't a, any evidence really for this. Pure speculation. Yeah, so neither Lizzie nor Emma ever made any documented accusation of this, even to confide in close friends. Nobody came forward saying that this accusation had been made. Um, I think what a lot of people seem to come back to is that there's a door between Lizzie's room and her parents' room. The layout of the house, we will discuss. It's a strange house. But there was a door physically connecting Lizzie's room to her parents' room that they speculate he may have used to come into her room at night. This door had locks on both sides and was typically kept locked on both sides. There was also furniture pressed up against both sides of it, so it was used as a wall. It's It's plausible in the sense that, like, child molestation by parents is a lot more common than I think we're all fully comfortable with, but, like, there's no specific reason to think it, other than the whole murder thing. Yeah, like, I mean, who's to say? None of us can ever know for sure, but there's nothing documented. Like, Lizzie was very open about certain complaints in the household with her friends. Um, A lot of this stuff was brought forward after the murders. This, This is just something that's never, that nobody ever seems to have documented it's kind of a prime example of working backwards from the murders where if you start with the premise that lizzie did it and you need to come up with a motive some people sort of figured like hey years of sexual abuse would make somebody pretty mad yeah Um, there's i'm granted yes (laughs) i don't know can't say for sure but it doesn't seem like there's a lot of evidence to support it i mean i'd kill somebody just to be able to poop in peace but like i don't know (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> this is all about the toilets. This whole case is just about <laughs> the toilets. That would make me angry enough. I don't know what about you. <laughs> Lizzie's quest for a comfortable flush. That's what this is. I need a hot shower. That's, <laughs> that's really where I'm coming from. What we do know is that L- Emma and Lizzie argued with their father about money. So as adults, Emma and Lizzie helped their father with his business by managing many of his properties. They became upset when he began to give some of those properties away as gifts to members of Abby's family. That's their stepmother. Which is wildly generous considering everything else about him. Right. So Abby's sister was gifted a house that he owned, like the same way that you would gift somebody a toaster. This move in particular outraged Emma and Lizzie. So they went to their father and told him that they also wanted to be gifted with property. I mean, (laughs) fucking who doesn't, girl? Same. Same. Hard same. I can't even imagine how many times I've looked at my parents and I'm like, could you give me a house, mother? They're like, no. (laughs) (laughs) We only have the one. I'm like, I'll give it right back. Don't worry about it. I desire the gift of home ownership. That's basically what they did. They told their father that they wanted the home they had lived in with their mother, Sarah, when she was still alive. Andrew did grant the request. He sold the home to his daughters for just one dollar. What we legally call consideration. Exactly. Uh, The girls would actually eventually sell the property right back to him a few weeks before he died, charging him $5,000 to take possession of the home. 
So he basically gave his daughters the equivalent of something like $130,000 in today's money. Apparently, house flipping is extremely lucrative if you just get your rich dad to give you free homes and then sell them back to him at market rate, which is a fun money tip. You can take that one. That's free money advice. It's like that self-help, like, girl, wash your face. Like, girl, ask your dad for a house. (laughs) (laughs) The Bordens also kept pigeons in the barn on their property, and in May of 1892, which was just three months before the murders, Andrew Borden went out to the barn and killed several of them. Uh, it's not really clear why, but it's possible. Yeah, it's possible they were meant for dinner. Just because he felt like it. This is his stress relief. Seems unlikely. Popping pigeon heads. Just, just snapping pigeons. Again, the finer things in life. <laughs> they didn't have TV back then. Just, he wouldn't have just, bought one even so. Just playing like that old fruit ninja game in a barn with live pigeons. <laughs> 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 this is how I relax. <laughs> <laughs> Need to unwind. No, not a great hobby at a time period when people own, like, four articles of clothing. <laughs> uh, just strip down. Then, you, then, you're, then you're naked killing pigeons in the barn. <laughs> this story has often been presented as him chopping their heads off with an axe, but it seems like he may have twisted their heads off. Lizzie was asked about this incident at trial and really couldn't remember much about it. But pigeon used to be a pretty common meal in that area, and if the family kept pigeons, it's likely that that's what they were raised for. Some people have presented this incident as the possible motive to the crime, saying that Lizzie was very upset about her father killing the pigeons, to the point that she took her revenge by murdering him as he slept. Doubt? Um, (laughs) some doubts about that one. You can't really get a sense of her tone from reading trial transcripts, obviously, it's just a literal translation of her words. But when she's asked about this incident, she doesn't really seem upset about it. Like, she's just sort of very blasé about, like, yeah, I came in, some dead pigeons, don't really know what that was for. Like, can't really remember how many there were. Like, she doesn't... She doesn't seem to find the the details of them very interesting. Yeah, so it was presented as, like, he killed her beloved pigeons and she wigged out, but I don't know. Mm. Uh, we do know that both Emma and Lizzie left the home in July of 1892 to go stay with friends for a while, possibly following a family argument of some sort, although we don't know what that was. Lizzie returned to Fall River about a week before the murder, but she stayed at a friend's boarding house for four days before returning home. We don't know for sure what the family were arguing about in the weeks before the murders, but it seems like it might have been money. That was just a, a hot button issue for them. Which leads us to the murders. And the events of August 4th, 1892, which is the day of the murders, are hard to pin down to an exact timeline. So I've done my best, but be aware there's some wiggle room in a lot of this. I mean, for one thing, this is well before the modern age of surveillance cameras and call logs and timestamp receipts. People were just kind of winging it when it came to knowing what time it was. Was there a clock nearby? No. And then I don't know. Not a clue. I was awake, the sun was up, daytime. I mean, for another thing, there are only four people in the home when these events take place. Two of them end up being dead. Uh, One of them is asleep for a pretty critical part of the murders, and the last one is accused of doing it, so not great. Not helpful. Uh, Lizzie Borden also gave several different versions of the day's events, which we will discuss. And finally, perhaps most delightfully, Everyone in the household was believed to be suffering from food poisoning at the time of the murders. Awesome. First I'm shooting myself and now I'm dead. 
This day cannot get any worse. All through the accounts of, like, the days leading up to the murders, it's like, yeah, and then this person had to go out back and vomit for a while, and then they came back in. Like, I've missed part of this conversation because I was out up chucking in the yard. Like, yeah, everybody, everybody's sick during the murders. Honestly, I have had food, food poisoning incidents where I would have rather died. Right, they tend to leave that part out of the nursery rhyme because I think Lizzie Borden, had the, <laughs> Lizzie Borden had the squirts doesn't really rhyme with anything. But, uh, but yeah, just just keep that in the back of your mind. So, uh, <sighs> Lizzie Borden shit the bed so she wanted her father dead? I don't know. <laughs> it's as tenuous a rhyme as it is a motive. <laughs> <laughs> So on the evening of August 3rd, 1892, which is the evening before the murders, John Vinicum Moores arrived at the Borden household to discuss business matters with Lizzie's father, Andrew. John Morse was the brother of Lizzie's biological mother, Sarah Morse. John and Andrew had continued to do business together after Sarah's death, so the the brother-in-law was around. So the people home at the time were Lizzie, Andrew, Abby, and Maggie, the maid, when John shows up. Emma, the sister, was off traveling at the time of the murders. Mr. and Mrs. Borden had become violently ill on the evening of August 2nd, the night before, and had begun vomiting after dinner. So when John arrives on the 3rd, they are still reportedly feeling unwell, as was Lizzie. In a lot of stories about the case, this is blamed on some leftover mutton that the family had been sort of eating throughout the week, because again, Andrew is not a man who enjoys spending money. You will eat that three-day-old mutton and you will like it. Lizzie herself believed that the source of the food poisoning was actually some bakery bread that they had all eaten, except for the maid, because she was the last to get sick. But historians have also suggested that it was probably the swordfish the family had for dinner the evening of the second that was to blame. But in any case, no matter what it was, something made them all sick. But Abby, the stepmother, and later Lizzie, feared that the family had been deliberately poisoned, as Andrew was not a popular man in the Fall River community, because he is a tightwad. Um... How unpopular do you have to be? Have you literally been shooting kittens for money? Most people, when they don't like you, they just take a dump on your doorstep and call it a day. I don't know, that's the cutthroat world of uh, coffin sales. We gotta poison people. So on the evening of August 3rd, following dinner, Lizzie went next door to visit her friend Alice Russell, staying until around 9pm. She told Alice all about the family's illness and her stepmother's fears that they had been poisoned. Lizzie shared her own theory that the poison had somehow been slipped into the daily milk delivery. Lizzie also told Alice her father seemed to have several enemies in the local business world and shared that she had heard him arguing with various men who came to the house. She also said that the family barn had been broken into twice and that the house had been broken into, but said her father did not allow the family to speak about those incidents. Just a lot of chaotic shit going on. A lot of shit going on. So, you know, the question is... Are those genuine possible suspects, or was Lizzie brilliantly setting the stage for a grand murder plot? You decide. That's throwing out a lot of rope, though. Yeah, like, what are the odds? I don't know, that Lizzie's just setting it all up to blame those shifty Canadians next door. Like, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> like, you're you're having bad experiences with business partners. Also, there's people around who are poisoning you. Uh, and they're slipping into the milk delivery, but also someone's breaking into the barn. That's a lot of shit. So Lizzie's Uncle John stays the night of August 3rd at the Borden home, sleeping in the guest room on the second floor. Andrew, John, and Abby had breakfast together the next morning. A hearty breakfast of mutton with mutton broth. 
Uh, mm. Mm, the family that just loves leftover mutton more than anything. Honestly, I'm gonna I'm gonna be straight with you. If I thought I'd either A been poisoned or B was having food poisoning, I would stop eating whatever I had been eating. Nah, they're just they just keep on trucking. They're just uh Like like what is this, the scientific method? We have to test it four or five times and see if we shit ourselves to death every time? Honestly, I don't even know that like Food poisoning is the worst part of eating room temperature mutton. I think it's the fact that you've just eaten room temperature mutton. Breakfast was served by Bridget Maggie Sullivan, a 25-year-old Irish immigrant who worked as the family's live-in maid. After her parents and uncle had eaten, Lucy came down to have her own breakfast of coffee and cookies. Not a not a lady who enjoys room temperature mutton in the mornings. Bridget Maggie Sullivan. Could you think of three more stereotypical names for an Irish woman? <laughs> so interesting you comment on that, because Maggie was a nickname. Her name was Bridget Sullivan. Uh, I'll be calling the maid Maggie throughout the podcast for clarity's sake, because that's how she's referred to in a lot of the trial documentation. But it's not clear if Bridget actually liked this nickname. Apparently it was the name of the maid the family had before her, and they just kept calling her by it like a replacement goldfish i get it well you don't want to upset your toddler it's finn diesel and finn diesel the second well i mean we've already actually talked about this in the podcast uh somehow this has come up before but uh in the 19th century it was pretty common for upper class and middle class women to refer to irish servant women by nicknames Mm. Um, so in some areas it was actually quite common to refer to all irish servant women as bridget regardless of the actual name Bridget's. Apparently, in this particular part of Massachusetts, it was also common to use the name Maggie as just sort of a, a go-to for catch an Irish all. servant girl. Just a catch-all. Just a semi-derogatory term for the women who make your life possible. Yeah, as one does. Yeah, so after breakfast, Andrew and John retired to the sitting room for an hour to continue discussing business. And then at 8.48, John left the Borden home intending to go buy a pair of ox, like the animals, the birds or the or the bovines? The bovines. Oxen. No, no, he's not intending to buy a pair of endangered birds. <laughs> but wouldn't that be um, entertaining if he was? No, he's intending to buy large bovines to pull the cart. He's then going to go visit his niece and is planning to return to the Borden home at around noon for lunch, which is a pretty packed schedule. Man's yeah. got some stuff on the go. I also Places just love- to be. How fucking early do these people wake up in the morning that they've had their breakfast and had an hour-long business discussion and are out of the house at 8.48 a.m.? That is early. Uh, exhausting. It's exhausting. <laughs> what, do you go to bed at 6? Probably, because it's dark. <laughs> right? We don't want to waste the kerosene. <laughs> so Andrew Borden left the home a few minutes later at sometime around 9 a.m. for his daily morning walk. After eating her own breakfast, Maggie Sullivan then becomes ill while washing the dishes and goes out to the backyard to vomit. So, when Maggie was able to compose herself and come back inside the house, she saw Abby Borden dusting the sitting room door. Abby told her that the windows of the home were filthy and needed to be washed inside and out. Maggie left her to continue with her cleaning, and it was the last conversation that the two women would ever have. Can you imagine the amount of soot on the inside of this building? Yeah, no, it would be disgusting. Like, the soot that would build up burning kerosene constantly, it would be gross. Um, but I, I do love the last conversation these women ever have is about window washing. Just fucking smashing that Bechdel test. Woo! 
We're doing it. Yes. Two named female characters discussing windows. Boom. Feminism. The lowest of bars. <laughs> uh, uh, although the family had a regular live-in maid, they still had a lot of cleaning duties. There's just there's way too much to do in a home with only one fucking working sink for a maid to handle it all. Well, that, that's the thing is like the amount of work involved here. Like it's not just the servant doing it. Like no, you have to you you got to move a lot of your own shit buckets. <laughs> and they did. She didn't clean the bedrooms or empty chamber pots. It was not one of her duties. So uh, although the family had this live-in maid, cleaning the guest bedroom was supposed to be one of Lizzie and Emma's regular chores. I guess if you're still living at home at age 32 to 41, you've got chores. Yes, like spinning. <laughs> you just, you sit there and you think about why you don't have a husband. And make a blanket while at it. Uh, warm yourself with your satin. You are a disappointment with a barren womb. <laughs> <laughs> this is just Jessica attending a community knitting class. <laughs> <laughs> You're just sitting there in a fun little knit circle. Everybody's just like chatting away about Bridgerton and you're like, I am barren and I deserve this. <laughs> 32 and not yet wed. Grandpapa will be disappointed. <laughs> yeah. So on the day of the murders, it was Abby Borden who went upstairs to clean the guest room. And we know this because that's where her body was found. <laughs> that's a big hint. So sometime between 9 a.m. when Andrew Borden leaves for his early morning walk and 10.30 a.m. when he returns from the morning walk, Abby went up to the guest room on the second floor to make the bed because that's where John had stayed the night. It was there while making the bed in the guest room that she encountered her killer. So investigators at the time determined that Abby had been facing her killer when she was initially struck with the hatchet. So the first blow hit her in the side of the head, catching her just above the ear. They believe that the first blow also knocked her to the floor, causing injuries to her face and nose. She was then struck 17 to 18 more times in the back of the head, which killed her. And despite multiple other people being home at the time, nobody seems to have heard the attack on Abby Borden. Like, especially if she sees her killer, which we presume that she did, did she see someone she expected to see? Well, that's always been the big question. Is like, why did why were so many people home at the time and nobody hears this? I don't know that axe murdering is a quiet activity. Not, <laughs> not in my experience. What do you mean your experience? I don't know. I don't want to talk about it. Right, right. Remain silent. <laughs> do we have that? I think so. I mean, Canadians not technically. We don't technically have the right to remain silent. We have the right not to self-incriminate. So eh. I'm I'm saying mum. Little column A, little column B. The right not to admit to confess to axe murder on a podcast. Uh, we also uh, this is this is a fun thing about Canadian law. Uh, a few years back, it was legally found by by judges in the Canadian system that apologizing, uh, in the sense of like I'm sorry, is not necessarily an admission of guilt. It could be also be an expression of sympathy. So that is official j- Canadian jurisprudence. <laughs> A cultural consideration. We had to because too many people were going to jail. <laughs> For apologizing. <laughs> See, that's that's cultural sensitivity right there. The Canadian apology. 
When Andrew Borden returned home from his morning walk at around 10.30 a.m., he found he was unable to open the front door with his key. The front door of the Borden home had three locks, with the third being a night lock that could only be opened from the inside. And it was still engaged when Mr. Borden came home. So this suggested that nobody had used the front door that day. Everybody who had entered or exited the house that morning must have gone through the back door or the screen door in the kitchen. Because it was one of Lizzie's chores was to engage the night lock at the end of the night and kind of lock up the house for the night. Maggie, who was in the process of washing all of the downstairs windows, heard him fiddling with the locks and went to go let Andrew Borden in. When she reached the front door, she had difficulty unlocking the night lock. As she was struggling with the front door, she let out a... And, you know, avert your good Christian ears, folks. She let out a curse word. <gasps> Maggie. I know. Straight to jail. Straight to jail. <laughs> what would the Pope think? <laughs> What's funny is that it's reported this way that she let out a curse word, but Maggie's court transcript says that she said pshaw, which doesn't really count as no. a swear word. That counts as a You didn't sound. even say sugar, that's for heaven's air- sakes. No, that's air leaving your face. It's possible she used a more acceptable word in court, or that the court transcript chose not to document the original word. Um, but I don't know. It's We can talk about all this grisly murder in the news, but heaven forbid an Irish woman say shit. <laughs> Maggie would later testify that after she said the curse word while fiddling with the door, she heard Lizzie laughing at it from the top of the stairs. She would. She later went on to say that Lizzie was either at the top of the stairs or in the entranceway to the second floor. Um, she couldn't tell which, but that Lizzie was laughing at this from the second floor. This would become important in the trial because by this point, Abby Borden was already dead, and it was argued that her body would have been obvious to anybody who was up on the second floor with it. If Lizzie was really on the second floor at 10.30 a.m. without alerting the rest of the household to the body, the argument went, it must have meant that Lizzie was the killer and was waiting to murder her father before sounding the alarm. If you look at the house's floor plan, however, it's not clear that that's true. So a lot of the discussion of this case only makes sense if you physically have the layout of the home in front of you. It can be really hard to comprehend how a bunch of people were tromping all over the house without noticing a dead woman splayed out in the middle of the floor. And it makes a lot more sense when you look at how the house was actually laid out. So you can actually go, I don't know if you're listening to this on your phone, on the bus, probably, uh, but you can take a minute and pull up the floor plans of the house. You can find them online with the locations of Abby and Andrew's bodies marked for your convenience. There's there's several yes, versions. They're the of same these maps. color as Swedish fish, and they're my favorite. Yeah, there's like a there's a fun map that's yeah, it's got the house layout, everything labeled, and then yeah, there's little red blobs that are the bodies, and they do look like Swedish fish. It's wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> Great. So charming. So the upper floors are divided into like front and back halves. You can't access all parts of the second floor from every room. So from the the front of the house, you could go up the front stairs where you had access to the guest room and to Lizzie's room, and then you had to walk through either of those rooms to get to Emma's room. This is before they believed in hallways. From the back stairs, you could access Abby and Andrew's room, or you could continue up the stairs to Maggie's room, which is on the third floor, along with an unused bedroom. So there was this door connecting Lizzie's room to her parents' room, but like we've mentioned, it was kept locked at all times. Um, the door was actually behind the headboard of Lizzie's bed, so it was very unlikely that it was ever opened. But yeah, the argument goes, like, if you were coming up the front stairs, the second floor landing opened onto the guest room straight ahead, and Lizzie's bedroom would be on the right if you're coming up the stairs. 
Abby's body was on the floor between the far wall of the guest room and the bed. So if you're coming up the stairs, it'll be very obvious because at a point it will be eye level to you. Um, but mm. if Lizzie is going from her bedroom down the stairs, she would have to like turn her head and look down to f- to see it. She'd have to crouch. If she is standing at a normal, if she turns to look into that room, she probably sees nothing. She might see feet sticking out the back, but she'd have to like look sideways and down, which is not something you would really do going about your daily life in this house. It it makes sense. Look it up online if you haven't already, and it will make a lot more sense to you if you actually see the floor plan and think about what it would look like to move through that space from Lizzie's room down the stairs. So after arriving home, Andrew went into the sitting room, and Lizzie came downstairs and went into the room to speak with her father. In one version of her testimony, Lizzie then claimed that she helped her father remove his boots and put his slippers on to go have a nap on the sofa. This would become an issue for her because he was still wearing his boots when his body was found. Maggie said that she heard Lizzie tell her father Abby had received a note and had gone out, possibly to visit someone who was ill. So, Abby's dead in the room upstairs, but Lizzie says she's received a note and she's gone out. After speaking with her father, Lizzie then goes into the dining room and puts an ironing board on the dining room table. So remember, kids, this is literally back in the days when ironing boards are just a wooden board that you don't that you use so you don't ruin your table. They're not a freestanding thing. It's like it's like um it's like a cutting board. Yeah, basically. But for clothes. It's so you're not putting a hot iron directly on the table. That's all that it is. You're just trying to ruin the varnish, like a coaster. Yep. It's basically a big old laundry coaster. And she starts to do some ironing while chatting away with Maggie, who is still cleaning the windows. Maggie testified to the following, and this is this is a direct quote from her trial transcript. She said, Maggie, are you going out this afternoon? I said, I don't know. I might and I might not. I don't feel very well. She says, if you go out, be sure and lock the door, for Mrs. Borden has gone out on a sick call, and I might go out too. Says I, Miss Lizzie, who is sick? I don't know. She had a note this morning, and it must be in town. Lizzie then told Maggie that a local department store was having a sale on dress materials, eight cents a yard of real steel. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, well, maybe she's, you know, she, she's getting older. She's going to need that cloth soon. <laughs> All the spinning that she's got to do. I mean, that's a good deal. <laughs> I feel like fabric is like 80, 80 fucking dollars a square inch these days. So, you know, that's not bad. I'm naked right now. Uh, <laughs> wow, that's that's information I didn't need. I'm actually not naked. I'm just covered in sweat. <laughs> Even better. <laughs> There's clothes on top of the sweat, but it make it's all honestly worse. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. So Maggie was still feeling unwell and didn't feel like going out. So instead, she went up the back stairs to her bedroom on the third floor to rest, where she promptly dozed off in her bed. So she's asleep for the murder, which is wonderful. Delightful. Um, Good. <laughs> Maggie was awakened at around 1.10 a.m. by the sound of Lizzie shouting, Maggie, come quick. Father is dead. Someone came in and killed him. Very specific. Very specific. Thank you, Lizzie. (laughs) Andrew Borden, surely enough, was dead. He was slumped over on the sitting room sofa with his body resting on the sofa and his legs dangling over the edge. He had been struck 10 to 11 times with a hatchet or similar weapon in the head. So if you're squeamish, I mean, we probably should have warned you, put a squeamish warning on this half an hour ago. Um, Our squeamish warning is our entire back catalog. Get over it. (laughs) Pretty much. Plug your ears. Uh, One of Andrew's closed eyes was split in half, 
So investigators yeah. took that as a clue that he had been asleep when he was attacked. He hadn't he hadn't woken up for this. He's 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 a tired man. I mean, he got up at like what four a.m. He's had a full day already, right? Yeah. Also, that's pretty murdered, all right. That is unambiguous. That's that's extremely murdered. Super murdered. I don't think it was a suicide, or was it? No, I don't think people tend to commit suicide by striking themselves in the head eleven times with an axe and then hiding the murder weapon. I don't think that that's. What if you're just really determined? <laughs> yes. I don't. I don't know that even if you put your mind to it, that's a realistic method of suicide. It's the perfect crime. <laughs> I feel like people don't split their own eyeballs in half. Um, probably not. It's just not. Probably not. Uh, so when Andrew's body's discovered at eleven ten a.m., his wounds were still bleeding. Investigators would later put his time of death at around eleven a.m. So when Maggie came downstairs, she saw Lizzie Borden standing in the kitchen with her back pressed against the screen door. Maggie went to go into the sitting room to check on Andrew, but said that Lizzie told her, Oh, Maggie, don't go in. I have got to have a doctor quick. Go over. I've got to have the doctor. Lizzie sent Maggie to go fetch Dr. Bowen, a physician who lived nearby. He was not home when Maggie got there, so Maggie told his wife, Mrs. Bowen, that Andrew Borden was dead and returned to the Borden household. Interestingly enough, there were two other doctors on the Borden street. There was an Irishman and a French-Canadian doctor. But Lizzie did not send Maggie to fetch either of them. Of course not, because they're papists. They probably did it. For the Pope. Ah. <laughs> um, he demands... He demands blood. Assassinations so often. <laughs> I don't know. Who's Pope at this time? I don't even know. 1892. Who is Pope? 18... I, I lose it after before John Paul, to be honest. He was Pope for so I... long. <laughs> I'm not faulting you for not having the popes memorized. <laughs> <laughs> you should. I only know the really, really old ones or the really, really recent ones. I don't know. There's, there's a vague. I should know this, Janelle. I should know this. I'm a failure. Well, this is why I don't have a husband. Thirteenth. This is why I don't have a husband. Your husband is like, tell me the exact dates of Pope Leo the Thirteenth's reign. And you're like, I can't, and he's like, you don't deserve children. Yeah, that's. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's Pope Leo the Thirteenth. I don't think he personally ordered the assassinations of Andrew and Abby Borden, but what do I know? <laughs> Leo stands for lion. He hungers for blood. He chose that name. <laughs> because there was twelve others, it seems like a good one. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> it's amazing that no one ever picked Francis, but uh, other than the new guy. Yeah, all right. That's a that's a solid name. Francis of Assisi is like one of the few saints that everybody knows. Come on, St. Francis. He's a classic. <laughs> I also miss the days when popes used to consistently name themselves with adjectives. Like, it would be, they would name themselves after virtues. Innocent, uh, Clement. I would never go with Cle Innocent, because, like, it feels defensive right out the gate. Pope Innocent. <laughs> like, ah, that, that'll, that'll throw them off the scent. <laughs> the moment someone's there, like, I'm Pope Innocent, I, don't know, I think you're fucking guilty. I don't know what yet. <laughs> <laughs> Jessica's just like, like that, uh, like Immediately suspicious. Noir, just doubt. <laughs> yes. <laughs> doubt. Press X to doubt. <laughs> now, now they go with people names, but it used to be just like descriptors and numbers. It was great. I like to call him Pope Frank, to be honest. Frankie! <laughs> <laughs> like he's still a bouncer in Rio de Janeiro. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he only has one lung. He's Wonderful. a hardcore. He's a tough guy, yeah. but I uh, don't think he's ordering assassinations. 
Um, He's better than Boniface. Boniface? What does he? What do you have against Pope Boniface? I just don't like the name. It's a. It's a. It's a bit much. <laughs> Tone it down, sir. You can be Bonnie. <laughs> oh, Pope Bonnie! Now I love it. <laughs> he already has the hat for it anyway, and the dress. <laughs> you're gonna get. I don't know. You're gonna get assassinated by Catholics. If they haven't excommunicated me yet, are they going to, Janelle? <laughs> <laughs> it's like Jessica. You're going to be cast out of the church. <laughs> so when they're not able to get the doctor right away, Lizzie sent Maggie to go fetch a neighbor, Alice Russell, the friend she'd been visiting the day before. Miss Russell was also not at home, so Maggie went to go track her down at a nearby home. Another neighbor on the street, Adelaide Churchill, saw Maggie Sullivan run back to the Borden home from Dr. Bowen's home, and she noted that Maggie was in a huge rush and looked extremely pale. Mrs. Churchill wondered worried that someone in the Borden home might be very sick. That she, she's not wrong. No. <laughs> and, you know, she she fills herself with her, all her white women instincts and she's like, right, time to be nosy. Yeah, she's like, I'm a middle-aged woman, somebody's rushing, time to involve myself. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a well-known fact. We actually get a racial bonus uh, in terms of sticking our nose in where it's not wanted. <laughs> it's like a plus two to speech bonus like. <laughs> yeah yeah people just tell you stuff although to be nice to mrs churchill it is in fact an emergency <laughs> it is an emergency and she is next door so she went to her kitchen window which faced the side of the borden home and she saw Le lizzie leaning against the screen door so she opened her window and called to lizzie to ask if everything was all right with them to which Lizzie called back, Oh, Mrs. Churchill, do come over. Someone has killed father. Oh, yeah, I'm going to come right over then. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, I'm not normally one for last-minute social engagements, but that would sort of light a fire under my ass. So Mrs. Churchill ended up being the first person other than a member of the Borden household to arrive on the scene. So when she came in, Lizzie was sitting on the stairs. Mrs. Churchill's account of that meeting is as follows. And again, this is a direct uh, quote from her trial transcript. I put my hand on her arm and said, Oh, Lizzie. Then I said, Where is your father? She said, In the sitting room. And I said, Where were you when it happened? And she said, I went to the barn to get a piece of iron. I said, Where is your mother? She said, I don't know. She had got a note to go see someone who was sick, but I don't, I don't know. But she is killed too, for I thought I heard her come in. She said, Father must have an enemy, for we have all been sick and we think the milk has been poisoned. Dr. Bowen is not at home and I must have a doctor. I said, Lizzie, shall I go and try to get a doctor? And she said, yes, and I went out. So, basically, Mrs. Churchill comes in. Lizzie's sort of freaking out. She's like, yeah, dad's dead. Pretty sure stepmom is dead, too. So she tells the stepmother that I heard my stepmother come in, but she's not anywhere, so I'm pretty sure she must be murdered as well. Mrs. Churchill left the house to go to a nearby stable, where she asked an employee to send for a doctor to the Borden home. She then returned to the Borden household, and shortly thereafter, Maggie Sullivan arrives, and Dr. Bowen also arrives, having received the, the message from his wife. Dr. Bowen went into the sitting room to examine Mr. Borden, and came back and said, He is murdered, he is murdered. <laughs> Thank you for the clarity. Went, went to med school for that one. Uh, dude with 11 axe wounds to the face is murdered. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> 
Going for that full full Chicago style. He fell out of my axe. He fell out of my axe 10 to 11 times. I mean, the guy has taken 11 axe wounds to the face. Like, there's no way that this is a pleasant scene. He then asks Mrs. Churchill if she would like to come into the sitting room to look at the corpse. And she's like, oh, no, 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 thanks. I, I don't want to like, nah, like, I'm good. Like, there's a there's a good reason to show like the doctor the body. And I mean, to be sympathetic to him here, like, he probably does not see a lot of murdered corpses as like a doctor who helps well to do people in Massachusetts. Like, he no. he probably does not see this on a regular basis. But Mrs. Churchill doesn't definitely doesn't need to look. <laughs> no, she doesn't. And this is also why the police work in, in the aftermath is so shoddy. Because, like, the doctor has confirmed that this is a homicide. And he's basically ready to start selling tickets. Like, everybody is just... Did you hate you want to look? No! <laughs> yeah, everybody's just running around the house. Like, nobody is here. None of the police are here. We're, we're just running around. Never mind, like, like, we don't know where the killer is, okay? <laughs> you should all be outside, sitting where it's safe, until the police arrive. We have no idea where the killer is. Go next door. Like, go to the neighbor's house. Why are you hanging Pick out? Pick up a no- phone. Call the cops. There's nothing you can do. He's dead. He's dead. We have no idea where Abby Borden is. We don't know who killed them. At least, if if Lizzie was the murderer, the other two don't know who killed them. Like, yell into the house, hey, Abby, are you there? If she doesn't answer, get the fuck out. <laughs> also, like, hopefully not too many members of our audience ever, like, walk in on an axe-murdered corpse. But the step to take in that situation is not, hey, everybody, do you want to come into the crime scene and just, like, have a look for yourself? Like, no. Yeah. That's not it. Like, the only reason you disturb the crime scene is if it's not clear the person is dead. Yeah, you do first aid to the best of your ability, and then you you get the fuck out if it's clear that that's not going to do anything. Don't call your friends in for selfies. That's That's not recommended. So at some point in all of this, Alice Russell arrived on the scene, and her version of events, like the others, is somewhat disjointed when it comes to timelines. She says she was in a pretty considerable amount of shock, which is understandable. Yeah, this is stressful. I don't have a watch, and it's stressful. It's not... <laughs> it's a bad time. Not not your best time for timekeeping. No. So she recalled that she asked the same question about where Lizzie had been during all this, and Lizzie gave the same answer, that she'd gone out to the barn shortly after her father got home, and had stayed out there for around 20 minutes looking for a piece of tin or iron to fix her screen. She said she found her father's body after she got back to the house. Maggie commented that if she knew where Mrs. Borden had gone out visiting, she could go track her down to let her know there was a problem with Mr. Borden and that she needed to come home. Lizzie said she thought she'd heard Mrs. Borden come home already and asked Maggie to go check if her stepmother was upstairs, which is like, I'm not looking for her corpse. You do it, maid I won't call by her name. You don't even remember my first name. You want me to send me upstairs? Fuck you. (laughs) Right? So she's like, uh, okay, guess I'm looking for a corpse. Maggie had Mrs. Churchill go with her. To go upstairs to check the Oh boy, Gordon. now we're safe. They don't know if there's an axe murderer on the loose, and they're just like, send the women to go look for corpses. Like, this is this is bananas. This is like peak white people in a horror movie. Like, <laughs> <laughs> All of these people should be dead by rights. <laughs> none of us, none as white people, we are not good at these situations. We're just like, all right, there's We probably, do not have an appropriate sense of danger. <laughs> if we know that there's a murderer or a ghost nearby, our instinct is to split up. <laughs> like, 
something just full on Scooby Doo logic. Something deep in our bones is like handle this alone with no help. That's the best move. Make sure nobody knows where you are and you have no backup. Separate from the group and confront it by yourself. That's something deep in our bones is like, that's what you gotta do. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) My parents live like deep in the woods and every time I'm out there, like my instinct is to put on a headlamp and go out in the woods by myself looking for ghosts. Like it's just, it's, it's in my blood. (laughs) I'm like, I hope there's a camera far away at, like, an odd angle that makes it look like I'm being watched so I can go, hello? (laughs) (laughs) I am not an outdoorsy person, but if you leave me in, like, deep woods at night, my first instinct is to go look for Slender Man. Like, that's just who I am as a person. You know, I I arrive at a cabin in the woods, and none of my friends are there yet, even though they said they should be there hours before me. You know, I'm like, hello? Hello? And then I immediately strip naked and take a shower. That's what I do. <laughs> <laughs> Headphones in, shower, on, yes. Uh, I want minimal visibility and absolutely no hearing. Love that. Just full on bubblegum pop as loud as I can get it. <laughs> That's how we do things. So Maggie and Mrs. Churchill got about halfway up the stairs, at which point they were eye level with the guest room floor and spotted her body on the floor next to the bed. Spotted Abby's body. Maggie went into the room and stood at the foot of the bed where she was able to clearly see that Mrs. Borden had been the victim of an axe attack just like her husband. So it was at this point, two corpses in, that police are finally summoned to the home. Like, it was pretty odd. Like, why do you need a second murder? Break <laughs> all the cops. How many men? Two. Two. Or we're just wasting their time. Never mind. Like, what? Like, I understand you're panicked. I, I, I'm sympathetic to that. But, like, no one can needs medical attention. They need the police. <laughs> right? There's a murder. Your instinct should not be to split up and look for more victims. Like, leave the house. Go outside. Get out. There is a, an active assailant. <laughs> nope. Not, not an issue. Not an issue. You they are just... not safe in here. You've got an Irish maid. What else do you need for investigation? Just send her upstairs. <laughs> Go check for murders. I just like that they're like, all right, we've got a murderer on the loose. We don't know if there's another victim. Send an immigrant to go check. (laughs) (laughs) She's Catholic. She's barely even human. Truly the American way. (laughs) (laughs) Just slightly above a dog in terms of value as a human being. And then you you have a middle-aged woman. She can't give birth to any more children. She can be sacrificed. Well, the neighbor is clearly like, I must know. I need, if if somebody's been murdered, I need to be the first to hear about it. Of course. (laughs) This is fat. So, most exciting thing that's happened all week. And which means when the police get there, we will have had numerous people already tromping through the crime scenes, touching the bodies. Just Excellent. nine out of Just ten. Just touching out of ten. all the corpses. Yeah, love that. Love that. But we will get into the police response and the subsequent trial in part two. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode. And we hope that you've spun the appropriate amount of wool on married women. <laughs> Go spin. Go spin. (laughs) And we'll see you back again for another episode uh, in a few weeks. Hooray. I've been Jessica. And I've been Janelle. And this is Histories and Mysteries.